In 2013, Spike Jonze's film Her was released. The film follows Ted, Joaquin Phoenix, an isolated introvert who ultimately falls in love with his artificially intelligent virtual assistant, Samantha, played by Scarlett Johansson. Mr. Theodore Twombly, welcome to the world's first artificially intelligent operating system. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Okay. Are you social or antisocial? I guess I haven't been social in a while. How would you describe your relationship with your mother? Oof, Thank you. Please wait as your operating system is initiated. Hello, I'm here. Hi. Hi, I'm Samantha. At the time, it was described as a curiously detached satire and a different and daring futuristic tale. But less than 10 years later, it seems that the future is already here. A year ago, a Google engineer named Blake Lemoyne said that he felt, in interacting with a large language model at the time called Lambda, felt that it was conscious because it basically said, are you conscious? And he said, I'm conscious. My name is Kenneth Kukier. I'm the deputy executive editor of The Economist. I've written several books on technology and society, one called Big Data, and I'm working on a new one on artificial intelligence and spirituality. Now, let's remember that the very idea of asking a large language model, are you conscious, and it's saying, yes, I am, is baked into the training data because all the training data is produced by people who are conscious. So, of course, what else is going to say? But yeah, I am conscious. It's a little bit like Benedict Evans, the, the famous tech pundit, has a wonderful analogy in which it's like taking a piece of paper and writing, I am alive on it, and then putting it into a Xerox machine and photocopying it, and someone walking past the photocopier and looking, picking it up and looking at it, saying, oh my God, it says I'm alive, right? Exact same thing. Love it. And Blake Lemoyne was not a one-off case, although perhaps the most high profile because of his position at Google. So in one way then, ChatGPT and the others are better at behaving as if they are intelligent rather than actually being intelligent. You talk to it and it's so convincing, it's hard not to think there's some glimmering of sentience lurking in there somewhere. But ChatGPT is a sort of sophisticated autocomplete. That's the kind of definition that stayed with me. You might remember Henry Ida in the first episode telling us that. It's brilliant at knowing how a human would reply to any given question, given the enormous amount of training data that's been thrown into it. But that doesn't mean there's a human-like intelligence lurking in there anywhere. My name's Henry Ida, and since 2017, I've been doing what I guess you could call deepfake or generative AI cartography. When they are generating these outputs, there's no conscious reflection going on there, right? There isn't understanding perhaps in the same way that we think about it in terms of a human processing things consciously, right? What we're really talking about is models that act effectively act as, as sophisticated autocomplete. And yet, people around the world have been turning to chatbots for friendship, connection, emotional support, and even to simulate the memory of a deceased loved one, effectively speaking to them from beyond the grave. And companies are feeding this need for human connection. AI chatbot Pi from Inflection claims to provide emotional support and advice. And meanwhile, Replica, a chatbot which comes with a good-looking avatar, bills itself as the AI companion who cares, always here to listen and talk, always on your side. Users have had romantic relationships with Replica chatbots. So, welcome to Power Trip, everybody. I'm Carmilla on a journey to find out about AI and the shifting train of power. Today, we've reached that final question. AI, humans, and whether power will ever drain from one and into the other. 
This is episode five, AI and the future of humanity. So as these machines become smarter and more human-like, better and better able at least to emulate us, what will be left to separate us? I think that's the really big challenge in a way. And this is the same, this is a classic philosophical problem around other humans, is how do I know, Carl, that you're conscious? How do I know that you're not actually just a, a really very eloquent and uh, a very attractive automaton? <laughs> uh, how do I know that you're not, you know, the same. And to be honest, it's really hard to say because I can't fundamentally get into your mind or see if there is true consciousness there. It is plausible that someone could create a Carl bot or a Henry bot, which is exactly the same in the way that it responds to external word stimuli as us, but it would not be conscious. And so it's this idea of, I don't think personally with the current, um, um, foundations and architectures behind these models that there is consciousness inherent to these models. Um, and the way that these models have been evolving is by what we really would call like a brute force approach. Sometimes we're just going like more data and more computational power at the same baseline architectures for AI, the same kind of AI, um, same algorithms. Now, there is this obviously very legitimate question as to whether we could create artificial consciousness. And I wouldn't want to say definitively yes or no, I don't know. When human beings think, they don't simply think rationally and logically. They think with a sort of a higher purpose and a deeper meaning. The Greeks had a term for it. They referred to it as logos and mythos. Mythos was never myth for them, that which is untrue, but it was a different way of reasoning, a different way of attaining truth. In some ways, mythos was a better and more accurate and more meaningful way of attaining truth. For after all, logos could be used by any lawyer in a courtroom to simply rationally to do something that is wrong and preposterous. It's just a syllogism of the universe where mythos tapped into deeper forms. The second thing is that, well, how does AI work? AI works because it needs data. But when human beings think at a deeper level, what they're trying to do is they're actually trying to get rid of information. It's the vacuity. It's the lack of information and data. We spend a lot of time on a cushion trying to actually rid ourselves of thought when we meditate. And we try to learn some insight that comes from the emptiness. There too, it seemed to me, we could pull apart these two separate strands of AI on one side making certain decisions, again, super intelligence, better than humans can, understanding the universe far more elaborately than we can with our, our four pounds, or three pounds squishy matter in our skulls. But at the same time, there's something else going on that we can appreciate that the machine never will, for we're alive and we have a form of spirituality, even if it's not religious, even if it's a secular spirituality, it's something deeper within us that participates in the wider area of others and the world. There's a particular sort of thinking that Ken is disagreeing with here, that consciousness, which I think is meant in a slightly different way to intelligence, is substrate independent. That it can in principle exist just as easily in a mathematical model as in the three pounds of squishy grey matter that sit in all of our heads. But Ken told me he sees something essentially resonant in all of us, a life force, if you will, that depends on our mortality, and that this is one of the great things that will always separate us from artificial intelligence, no matter how intelligent, indeed, that it becomes. It gives us an appreciation to the world and of timefulness, he says, one that the AI may never have. Even if we built that sense of mortality in, it would be artificial, 
unnatural, inorganic, programmed. So consciousness is one thing, maybe, but what about that easier to reach goal? We've been hearing about it in episode after episode up to this point. Artificial general intelligence. How soon might we see that emerge? How soon might we see systems that in some way or other surpass human intelligence and capabilities in that more general sense? That's coming up after the break. Hi, my name is Mike Woodridge. I'm a professor of artificial intelligence at Oxford University. I'm director of foundational AI research at the Alan Turing Institute in London. And I'm the author of The Road to Conscious Machines, a popular science introduction. People have said, well, is this now the road to artificial general intelligence and is it imminent? So I think what's plausible is that some version of artificial general intelligence is plausible somewhat soon. And what I mean by that is some version, I mean, something that would look like chat GPT, but would be much more reliable, for example, in its answers and more capable in terms of solving problems and things like that, which GPT is, you know, chat GPT isn't. You don't have to dig very deep to discover the limitations of that technology uh, at, at the moment. So how will it work? I suspect it will just be cobbled together. It will be large language models cobbled together with specialist tools for answering mathematical queries and things like that. Uh, and it will look like a true general purpose intelligent tool. Um, so that, I guess, is a version of artificial general intelligence, which is plausible in the relatively near future. And if it succeeds, and it really succeeds reliably, then that will be enormously valuable. And, you know, with the, there are applications that we can't even begin to imagine for what that technology might be able to do. But for me, I've always interpreted artificial general intelligence as meaning that the computer can do anything that a human being can do. So I'm a bit skeptical about a version of general intelligence, which, for example, can't clean up my kitchen or drive my car or cook me a meal to order. Right? Those are all things that if we had a machine which was as capable as a human being could, is capable, then you know, it would be able to do all of those things and the infinite number of other things that a human being could do. We aren't, at the moment, robotics AI is nowhere near having a robot that could go into your house and safely clean it up. Uh, nowhere near having a robot that could just go into your kitchen and clean the dishes, for example, or cook a meal to order, by which I mean not just a pre pre-prepared plan for a meal, but actually, hmm, what shall I have today? I think I'll have birth bourguignon and it cooks you a birth bourguignon to order. We're nowhere near technology that can do that. So if we don't have an AGI that can even drive a car, then it's a bit of an impoverished version of AGI, I think. So we'll have some version of AGI soon. I think that's plausible, but machines that are as capable as human beings, I think is still a way off. By Mike Waldridge's assessment there, the idea of AGIs becoming as capable as, let alone more capable than human beings, is certainly not an imminent threat. And we certainly haven't given these models a sort of agency, the ability to, you know, actually reach into the world and manipulate it, that surely any self-respecting robot rebellion would really need. The moment you give LLMs the capability to act in the world, then you're giving them the capability to do harm. 
I think it's not an imminent prospect, but I think one of the things that large language models have done is they have taken a lot of the debates in AI that were purely philosophical debates, the kind of philosophical how many angels can dance on the head of a pin type debates, and actually made them concrete. And now for the first time, we have machines which could plausibly pass the Turing test, for example. In May 2023, Jeffrey Hinton, a computer scientist often referred to as the godfather of AI, resigned from Google. Two months later, he co-signed an open letter titled Mitigating the Risk of Extinction from AI Should Be a Global Priority Alongside Other Societal Risks Such as Pandemics and Nuclear War. His fellow co-signers included Sam Altman and Bill Gates. Speaking about the matter at Cambridge University shortly after, he said, I decided to shout fire. I don't know what to do about it or which way to run. Humans, he went on to say, may be a passing stage in the evolution of intelligence. I was disappointed with the letter. I greatly respect Jeff's opinions uh, about things, uh, but I was disappointed with the letter for the following reason, that uh, it tied together a whole bunch of extremely speculative concerns, concerns around existential risks, uh, with a bunch of concerns which are imminent and, and real now, it, issues around bias and misinformation and so on. And I am much more concerned in the short term about those issues, issues of bias and misinformation and so on in the technology than I am about the existential concerns. If I have to list my existential worries about for humanity, then at the top of the list is, uh, is nuclear war, um, which, which has become a Obvious, for obvious reasons, become a very, very prominent concern over the last 18 months, right? I mean, we kind of thought we'd got past that as a, as a concern. It turns out we hadn't. Um, so I'm very concerned about that. Climate change, I'm really concerned about. Uh, somewhat further down, I mean, the rise of populist politics, which seems to be a, an increasing movement across the world. And I really do lose sleep about all three of those things. I do not lose sleep about existential concerns about AI. For AI to be able to do harm in the real world, we have to connect it to systems that can cause physical harm. If we don't do that, then it's very hard to see how it becomes an existential risk. So while Mike Waldridge may not be losing sleep over the perceived risk of AI, this is an issue which has truly divided the technologists. But having this debate at all kind of gives us this feeling of being propelled into the future with no speed limit. The phrase, the machines are taking over, has been used in many ways for a long time. One of the most famous early usages of a similar concept is a science fiction work, R.U.R., Rosam's Universal Robots, a 1920 play by Carol Chapek. In this play, robots, taken from the Czech word robota, meaning forced labour, which is also the first recorded use of the word in English, actually, are created to serve humans, but eventually they rebel and overthrow their creators resulting, of course, in the extinction of humanity. Another term which has roots in the sci-fi genre used to describe this dystopian future is the singularity. My name is Karen Leahy. I'm the CEO of Conjecture. The singularity is the hypothetical point where technological progress becomes so fast that it doesn't make sense to make predictions beyond that. At least that's the definition I like. So it's not a specific concept about self-improvement. It's not a particular argument about anything. It's just saying, at some point, technology progress gets faster and faster and faster, where just humans can't keep up anymore and it just doesn't make sense. A lot of futurism, like 
pop futurism is like, oh, in the year 40,000, you know, we'll have, you know, spaceships and humans walking around. I'm like, man, <laughs> what are you talking about? At some point, technology is going to get so weird that human biology will just be completely rewritable. Human minds will be uploaded and manipulable. We'll have Jupiter brains that are completely unfathomable to anything that we have today. So instead of me saying, like, I think this will happen, I say, like, at that point, I just, like, throw up my hands and I'm like, who the hell knows how it happens at that point? Now, I never thought I or you would ever have to seriously consider the probability, possibility, likelihoods and outcomes of a moment like this. One where the development of AI just accelerates faster and faster until it hits this described by many, you know, as a kind of exponential growth curve and just arcs into infinity and just stretches beyond our ability to even imagine, let alone predict. But here we are, we have to consider it. The singularity, a point where the AI that we can build begins to build itself and surpasses human intelligence and opens doors to untold possibilities. Can we peer at all at what might lie beyond that threshold? What happens when machines become Jupiter brains, fueled by algorithms and processes and data which completely exceed our very human, very squishy abilities to even imagine? The general point that's identified with that point of who the hell knows what happens then is when we have AGI, when we have systems that are vastly smarter than humans that can improve themselves. Currently, there's a double exponential, both hardware and software. And some of this is based on just like, how fast can you move material from A to B? Sure. Can an AGI move material fast from A to B? Probably, but was it economical? Maybe, I don't know. But there's clearly a massive bottleneck on intellectual labor. It's a, a massive bottleneck on super geniuses that can work 24 hours on something really advanced. And if you can get two cents an hour, John von Neumann's that can work on your algorithmic improvements 24-7 or at 1,000x speed, if we have a system running 1,000x speed, which is completely feasible given how fast transistors move compared to neurons, an AI could do two years worth of research in a single day. And at a million speed, you could do you know, 2,000 years of research per day. What would that look like? I don't know. It would be wild. And that's just what happens with exponentials, generally. This is what we should expect will happen sooner or later. Once you can, once the conversion of capital and energy to intelligence becomes efficient. Currently, it's not efficient. Currently, if you want to convert capital into intelligence, it's very inefficient to trade. You can't just buy 10 units of human intelligence, but soon you will be able to. And that will unlock a massive market inefficiency on intelligence itself, and it will unlock the final exponential. And whatever happens after that, I don't know, but it's definitely not going to be human. Well, there we are. Our journey around AI and power is drawing to an end. So I suppose it's my job now to actually give you at least my sense of what this all means. What will our early steps into the post-GPT age really be like? Let's start with what's actually clear. And crystal clear first then is that AI allows vast quantities of power to continue to concentrate in a very small number of companies. It's unmissable in that one area of the world who have built and run and own the models. That's nothing new. In fact, that's an old story. But maybe the reasons have changed. In the past, what caused these huge companies to emerge was network power. Whether you're a Facebook or an Amazon, a bigger network means you're much more valuable than a smaller network. That network effect, that's what it was called, allowed a small number of companies to become these winner-take-all behemoths. 
that have become part of our everyday digital lives. Now, and at least for now, there seems to be forces in how AI is developing that massively benefit from concentrations of data and talent and compute power. And there's really only a handful of companies that have been pushing the frontiers of the underlying technology, Google and Microsoft and Anthropic and OpenAI and the others. Uh, and that may even narrow further in the years ahead. We may even see one sort of agglomerated megacorp emerge with an unassailable advantage in AI. That's a possibility. And that also, that concentration of power, tracks to region. Technical frontiers are being broken really in one place above all others, and that's the United States. It's not inevitable this will remain the case, but previous decades have shown just what a gravitational pull Silicon Valley has over the talent and capital and ingenuity and innovation and everything else that is needed to continue to create disruptive technologies. One of the signatures of this revolution, however, is that whilst ownership of the models is really, really concentrated, their use, at least so far, is extremely open. Too open in the views of some who worry the powers conferred by AI will fall into the hands of too many bad actors for too many nefarious purposes. But even those voices who have warned us over these episodes about inequalities that will emerge across societies and within them have also pointed every time to the liberatory potential of AI too. Because a technology is more general purpose, it can be shaped in ways as different as all the different people who will use it. So this was never going to be simply a story of exploitation. And the uses that these tools are already being put to across the world in the name of access and empowerment is already thrilling and mind-boggling, and I think will continue to be so and even more. So the flows of power aren't simple or linear in that way, and the future is likely to be one where we see kind of both power concentrated in Silicon Valley and in a way, communities around the world being empowered at exactly the same time. Will the robots take over? Well, most of the concerns that we've actually encountered about the real dangers have far more to do with us, actually, than the robots, of our biases being reflected in the tech, of the danger of an engineering monoculture shaping the development of the technology, of existing unfairnesses in society being those that this tech might deepen even further, and of unhealthy media landscapes already existing being those that will be further damaged by things like generative AI and the creation of disinformation and online influence. But back to those robots. Each of the technical voices, at least that we spoke to, agreed, I think, on the most important salient points. The current models seem much more intelligent than they really are. They appear sentient, but they're not. We're nowhere near, I think, yet what you can call true consciousness or even actually general purpose intelligence. But I think there's a counterpoint, and it's not just where we are, but also the rate of change. And I think the experts are staggered by the breakthroughs in AI that they've seen happen. They never thought necessarily that they'd live to see them, and that they then now know that the future rate of progress is up in the air, and it might happen very, very fast indeed. We can't think that the rate of progress is going to be straightforward or stable or predictable or linear. In fact, actually, it seems to be accelerating even up to Connor's exponential growth curve arcing into the sky. As for the world of work, well, there it's too early to tell really who's going to get automated or even whether we'll lose jobs overall. That's not necessarily how revolutions have gone in the past. But the concerns are real, whatever happens, that what might be done to jobs might be extractive and exploitative. And I think there in our story, we come to this question of power and counterpower. Partly it's got to do with the tech, but partly other things as well, whether it's collective bargaining or organised labour or politics. 
So will this be a revolution that simply happens to us, or one that we're all part of and actually help to create? And what will ultimately determine that, I think, is the most important of all the power dynamics of power and counterpower that we've looked at throughout the episodes. And that's the capacity of governments to control the tech and how it's used. And totally different from 10 years ago, when the same question was being raised for big tech and social media platforms, political leaders around the world, this time around, recognize the importance of all of this. They know it's gonna to be tough to cast the rules around something moving so quickly, but they know it's also a challenge that they actually can't ignore. It's a challenge that they can't step away from and they have to actually step in and control the tech. And I think ultimately, and here I am putting my neck out, that they will. So there we have it. We're living in a moment of doubt and concern for sure, but also one that's indivisible from hope and optimism. I know I began with this dichotomy, whether we're going into an age of liberation or oppression, but I think our future really is going to be characterized by an onrush of both, both more liberation and more oppression than we've ever seen, and it's probably gonna all look quite weird for a while. But that onrush of both is one that I imagine must have felt actually quite familiar to many of our forebears, each at their own moments in time, trying to peer into their own murky futures to see what their own revolutions would look like and how they would play out. And then, like now, for those who can imagine a new world, for better and for worse, and it will be both, there are going to be potent new ways of turning that vision into reality. Welcome to the world of AI, and welcome to a power both distant and close to you all at the same time. And there I think we have to end it. I think the world is always bifurcated uh, between the is and the, the can be. And you have to live in the world of the status quo, but you have to imagine the world of the tomorrow. You have to skate where the puck is going, so to speak, in the ice hockey metaphor of Wayne Gretzky. Maybe to hearken into the um, William Gibson famous aphorism, the, the science fiction writer, the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed.